0: All right. Hello and welcome to the Tree Planner's Podcast. It's been a while. Um, what, several months?
1: Feels like years my <laughs> my timelines are all mush, but yeah, it's been a couple of months for sure.
0: Yeah. Uh, we just recently put one out, uh, which was a recording of an event that we held in Barrie called, what was it? The, the green uh, public town hall on the Greenbelt. Yeah,
1: public forum on the Greenbelt, yeah.
0: Public forum, yeah. <laughs> so there's a recording of that. If you're interested, it was it was, it was was good. It mm-hmm. featured Margaret and uh, Tim Gray, uh, Jeff Moneg, David Crombie, and Franz Hartman. And what did you say there's about, 250, 250 people. Yeah,
1: 200, 250 people. Yep. And then people online as well.
0: (laughs) Yep. And, uh, yeah, some really great quotes uh, on on the situation with the Greenbelt in Ontario and how this uh, provincial government has been handling that, which is the topic of our episode today kind of i mean it's a little bit old hat old news probably for a lot of people but we thought we would sort of take a look at how we've gotten here just kind of hitting some of the top notes and then also look at what might be in store for the green belt
1: mm-hmm.
0: in the future near it's term long term yeah
1: it's a remix today
0: yeah And uh, just to pick up on that thread of it's been a while, you know, we've been really busy with the Greenbelt stuff that has taken up a lot of our time in the past few months. You want to maybe go off uh, a couple of the other things that we've been working on or or fill in the Greenbelt work that we've been doing as well as uh, talk about some of the stuff that we have upcoming?
1: Oh, this is this is where you are going to challenge my middle aged brain because I am like, which which stuff <laughs> are we working? on? I mean, to pull back the curtain uh, behind uh, SCGC, we, this summer we were focused a lot on working with our youth interns, talking about youth outreach and getting them involved in uh, getting them involved in ways that we can better engage youth in the area around local issues. We firmly believe that climate change is uh, a local issue. It doesn't mean it doesn't have global impacts, but that the best way people can engage on it in it is uh, on the ground in their local community in a variety of ways. So that was a really transformative experience. That's using the quotes from the girls, Shanti and Jules, who are part of it. That's That's part of the, the reason why we do it is to help them transform from kind of sideline environmentalists who have an understanding of, climate change and become more empowered actors um so there's been that we also have a big event coming up in um the end of october with margaret atwood sarah harmer tanisha thompson who's the Barry uh, per- poet laureate and jeff Meneg. so that's been taking up some time and then of course we have the regular stuff with our coalition there's mzo's we've been working on in romera uh, we're also hooked into a lot of different provincial groups. So the Greenbelt saga took up a lot of oxygen for our small team. Um, and rightly so. rightly so. But it was uh, a lot of meetings behind the scenes with provincial organizations. It was a lot of emails back and forth within our team and phone calls and frantic, like, oh, what are we going to do here? How should we do this? Um, also, the calculated and calm, okay, let's write this letter. It was a, a windfall uh, in some ways, but it was also a lot of, a lot of effort um, for our small team.
0: Yeah, and I think a big part of our focus on the green belt also, so not just these most recent controversies, changes that have happened and have now been pushed back against successfully for the time being anyways. Uh, but for us, a big focus on protecting the green belt is a highway project called the Bradford Bypass. Most people yes, are probably of aware of that. And that has been um, a big focus of ours as well. It's kind of in our backyard. It's uh, meant to run from Highway 400 over to the 404. Uh, Just north of Bradford and cuts through some um, really prime agricultural land as well as uh, large swaths of the Greenbelt wetlands, uh, some um, habitat for sensitive and endangered species in there as well. We've done a whole bunch of freedom of information requests. Margaret's been doing a lot of, putting in a lot of time on those. You love me. Yeah, and <laughs> then you get back these reams of um, of documents that you have to then sift through for any information that could actually be useful. It is a fair bit of work to actually find useful information in some often in what's provided
1: and then read it all because sometimes yeah. you get, you know, a, a good uh, like response where they say, oh, we found uh, 500 records. And then you get back a thousand pages and some of them are redacted, meaning they've highlighted out key information. And some of them are nothing burgers where it's just like I almost feel sometimes it's done intentionally. Like here, we're just hmm. going to put it pages and pages of just nothing emails. And then we've also been in appeals because some of the stuff regarding the bypass, if you feel that the government has overused, like this is a confidential thing, this is because of cabinet, because of whatever, you can appeal to the integrity, to the Freedom Information um, Commission and they'll kind of go through it. But what we learned is that even if you appeal it, and the um, investigator agrees with you that it's been overused, they don't actually have the authority to make the province or the ministry or whoever um, to release those records. They just end up saying, hey, ministry, we think you should probably release those records. And then the ministry can say, I don't think so. And then that's where it ends. And so we did it, went, went through an appeal all about the bypass because the Auditor General wrote a report talking about the costs of the bypass. And we have a document that says, you know, from the from our FOI that says, you know, we know that the bypass. I'm paraphrasing here, but essentially the sentence is, we know that the bypass eight hundred million dollar figure is well below uh, today's costs. We think the bypass will cost more. Like and then it's blacked out. So we're like, well, okay, if it's already been released to the Auditor General, we would like to see that number. And funny enough, they held it back. The Auditor General found that it was two to four billion dollars, probably close to four. So I'm now wondering. Is it two to four billion dollars behind that black whiteout, or mm. is, it, is it higher? And they don't want to release it. it just seems like a, such a silly thing. So those things all take time to go through that process.
0: So this is two to four billion dollars for a sixteen-kilometer highway.
1: Yeah, quarter of a billion dollars, two hundred fifty million dollars per kilometer.
0: Yeah. Well, so I mean, that's on the four. That's on the four billion dollar.
1: On the four billion mark, dollar right? end
0: it goes into sixteen four times yeah. quarter that yeah
1: yeah so and I think that what's important to know is is I know we're going to get into the greenbelt stuff here a little bit but the reaction that I've had some people uh, present to me after the news that the lands that were uh, taken out and opened up for developer friends that already owned it but now could build on it and or even if they didn't build on it they could sell it off at a much higher rate or leverage it against other projects um, they're like, okay, the Greenbelt's safe now. And I think that the that people need to realize that the first assault that this government did on the Greenbelt were the highways. That, you know, there are uh, hundreds and hundreds of acres of greenbelt land, not to mention adjacent farmland, adjacent wetlands, adjacent forests that are not in the greenbelt but technically ecologically connected to the to the greenbelt that are gonna be um, removed. And so I kind of think we said that opening up those lands for sprawl is a no-go and it seems to me that opening up those lands for cars and pollution should also seem like a no-go
0: right mm-hmm. well yeah so there's a there's a good through line to to establish and follow here this bit of infrastructure highways are sort of purpose specific to via to to, to to cars uh you know you get some um some heavy trucks in there as well for cargo freight what have you but for the most part it's meant to uh facilitate the travel between populated areas uh so you know barry down to toronto and the gta for commuters Um, And that's the argument that they're making uh, as justification for these highways is that they will help ease congestion, which is which they project to increase over the next few decades as population also increases in this area. So this is the argument that we that we often make is, well, you know, there's kind of two ways of thinking about that. One is we can continue to build communities in the way that we have, which are car reliant communities, which means that you have to get in your car in order to access basic amenities such as groceries right so walking or taking public transit or you know even biking if the weather's nice and some people like to bike when the weather's not nice that's fine too the hardy those those hardy ones among us um,
1: (laughs) people in the crowd
0: (laughs) yeah yeah well they i guess their 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 weather isn't quite as harsh in in the winter but there are places where they anyways getting sidetracked but if we continue to build uh suburban communities where you have to get in a car in order to access food because you know it's it's more than a few kilometers away the nearest grocery store for for most people then sure people are going to need to continue to use their cars to get from point a to point b whether that's the groceries or whether that's they're you know dropping their kids off at school or whether that's getting to work but that has a number of additional impacts, which includes the loss of farmland, because this is a very spread out style of development. You know, if you've listened to us, and you I, I, would probably sound like a broken record it's here. Like, and is, this is, is a different episode? Yeah, this is stuff that we talk about quite often. But that business as usual model, it isn't too difficult to connect the dots between that and increased congestion. But there's a lot of costs that go along with that. None the least is this four billion dollar price tag for this highway, which is our money, right? That's public money. That's not sort of just generated from from thin air. That's that's money that could otherwise also be spent on healthcare. Which, mm-hmm. man, I've got stories for you there. <laughs> so why? Uh, just yeah, just, <laughs> uh, just lost uh, my my own family doctor retired recently, so that's been a saga. Uh, and, and eye-opening one to the state of Ontario's healthcare system, mm-hmm. but that's money that could be used—well, healthcare, education, what have you. Pick your, pick your, pick your uh, spot where that could uh, mm-hmm. be used. So the flip side of that coin is, well, we start building communities in a more con- compact, more efficient built form, where we actually have uh, smaller grocery stores nearer to where more people live. Uh, with more efficient modes of transportation like public transit, we connect those mm-hmm. urban hubs together with inter with regional trail uh, rail, sorry, such as the GO Train, uh, which runs between Barrie through Bradford down to Toronto. But you know it 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 goes down a handful of times and comes back a handful of times per day. It's not the most efficient. Uh, for people, it takes it generally takes a little little while as well. And once you get down there, then also you're relying on the on the transportation systems there. If you're in, if you're in the sort of more outer uh, suburbs of Toronto, the uh, public transit isn't the greatest there either. So these all are choices that we're say. making. Yeah, all that's <laughs> to say, these are choices that we're making, and we're allowing our government to spend a lot of money on. Uh, land use planning that is very inefficient and has a lot of impacts on both on our environment and our health. You know, there's air pollution impacts that comes from uh, business as usual models of, of car use. So mm-hmm. and and. Uh, By way of getting into our Greenbelt discussion. um, (laughs) It was
1: a long segue. (laughs)
0: Yeah, as as we often do. But that (laughs) it's interesting and telling, I think, that a lot of the same developers who were caught up in this recent scandal where they took land out of the Greenbelt own land along these highways.
1: Mm -hmm. And also were major beneficiaries of minister zoning orders, which Mm. does the same thing. It takes Mm -hmm. land zones, farmland, wetlands, whatever, natural heritage or um, farmland and turns it into something that now is gonna be urban and now they can use it however they want. I mean, I think what people need to remember is just because it's zoned and just because council has given all approvals and whatever, still doesn't mean that things are gonna get built. And a lot of times what ends up happening is they use the zoning changes to go from unusable, quote unquote, unusable for land development to usable because now it's being zoned differently to make money. Mm -hmm. Right. They use it to make money in one way or another and uh, line their own pockets. So it's the same, you know, three or four big developers that were the main beneficiaries of ministerial zoning orders, that are the biggest landowners along the Greenbelt highways, that were also the biggest beneficiaries of the um, Greenbelt removals. And also, many of them were a part of the boundary force boundary expansion. So like in Hamilton, for example, or other places. Really, how I look at it is that the Greenbelt scandal of where they rezoned all these pieces of land to allow developers to build without any real public consultation. They took apart the whole land use process that the province has to make sure communities are being built intelligently and best use of resources. They they took that all apart so that certain developers that are not your mom and pop kind of builders that are in your in your hometown, those hardly even exist anymore because they've been now, big conglomerates; those are the same people. So, the Greenbelt scandal is just one example of the thread of how this this government has woven private interests into how our communities are developed and what the future of our world looks like. And, and with SEGC, we work a lot of time about land use planning as a climate action, housing as a climate action, um, and doing those things wrong means you are actually going against climate. Actions, right? Mm-hmm. So all of this is to say that that it's it's a bigger scandal about how the government bent all of the rules that have been existing for decades across several governments, not just liberal. I mean, Mike Harris was the one that kind of set up the, the growth plan that's now been demolished. So more <clears throat> he set up the, the territory for it and he's the one that established the Oak Ridge's Moraine. So this is like an undoing of so many years and years of, of public service. And for what, for some developers to be able to watch their, their, um, Watch their assets increase. I was talking to my friend the other day. She kind of like, she's not really political. She's kind of in the periphery of all of this. And she's like, So the government gave all these developers like $8.3 billion. That's crazy. And I's like, no, that's not really how it worked. I said, Imagine if if there was a stock, okay? And so you are a big shareholder in a certain type of stock, and you have a friend that's in the government and says, Hey, you know what? I can help you raise the price of that stock. And by making a few changes, you can see that your asset now increased by 800%. That's yes. legal. That's pretty much what they did
0: yeah. <laughs> right? so, in,
1: in a different way. Um, yeah. that, that's a good kind of encapsulation of, of what effectively what they did with the Greenbelt scandal.
0: Yeah. So they the the valuation before removal – uh, was 240 million. This is according to MPAC, Municipal Property Assessment Corporation, and this is from the Auditor General's report. 240 million, and it went up. Estimated uh, valuation after removal to 8,523 million, or eight billion, eight and a half billion.
1: That's a really confusing way to say that in thousands. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah,
0: well, I, I just thought I'd do it because yeah. <laughs> So um, eight
1: and a half billion almost.
0: Eight and a half billion. Yeah. It went went from two hundred and forty million up to eight and a half billion.
1: And those are twenty sixteen numbers. We're seven years um
0: based on twenty sixteen, that's right. Based
1: on twenty sixteen. So that's You know, that's twenty twenty sixteen dollars. So think about how much the cost of food, gas, hydro bills and whatever have gone up for yourself since 2016 and now apply that to land, which has skyrocketed.
0: So this is this is something that I think a lot of people don't. And and it's kind of maybe pulling back the covers a little bit uh, for the public when it comes to real estate development in Ontario and probably in a lot of other places as well, is a lot of the, well, I found this quite in, in one of the, it might've been, so there's this uh, piece done by uh, the Narwhal in the Trillium. Mm -hmm. No, I don't think it was that one. Actually, it was the one, maybe it was the one in the Globe and Mail or the Toronto star. I can't remember uh, about Mr. X. Yes. Let me see if I can find it here. I sent it to you. So yeah, it's in the Toronto Star. And one of the quotes I'm gonna sort of try and paraphrase it somewhat accurately here. But one of the quotes from somebody who is really involved with this stuff was roughly kind of along the lines of there's 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 developers who actually don't build houses. I mean so developers in air quotes, I guess, right? But they're they're more land speculators basically. They're the whole idea is to buy land and I guess where you're going to realize the biggest bang for your buck uh, in these transactions is to buy land that is not yet zoned for development then bring it within because then it's you know you're just buying agricultural land or whatever it's maybe it's on the cheaper side usually there's there's less potential for development value or for added Mm -hmm. value perhaps right uh, but then to bring it within the to get it rezoned so that it can be developed and then the the value skyrockets and then they sell it. They're not in it for actually building stuff. Who, mm-hmm. who needs to be bothered <laughs> with the red tape and stuff like that? <laughs> I guess
1: building within a built up community has a profit margin, but it's not as big as a profit margin as it is on the outskirts. And it's not just the developers that are uh, incentivized by this increased profit margin on the outside, the banks who are also giving developers money to build these projects want to see their profits realized as much as possible as well. So it's kind of like a pathway that doesn't always have a, a morality to it, but it's just more of like, what's the easiest way to do it? Where can we realize our bigger profits, which then brings us to the point of like the greenbelt scandal was supposed to be "quote unquote" about housing. We know that's not the case because the province's affordability house ta- or affordability um, affordable housing task force, the planners within the province, the municipal planners. There's an association there. All kind of said, "Hey, you know what? Government land isn't our problem. We're actually struggling with infrastructure, getting like pipes and roads to existing places, upgrading bridges. We're struggling with." with trying to get financing to build these kind of projects, because banks would rather just go with the easy project on the outskirts. So housing has become almost entirely dominated by the private market, where if you go back many decades, back in the 70s, it wasn't as big of a difference. There was still um, government-sponsored housing that was happening. We've pretty much cut that all out. So what happens when you give a private industry that's driven by profit, the the requirement to build the things that people need, it only is going to be given at a time when their, pro- their highest profits can be realized, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're to base healthcare on profit model, you're only going to get the healthcare you need that makes the most profit, which means you may not get what you actually need, you get what is profitable to the companies. Similar with housing, we're not going to get what we actually need, whether that be rent uh, geared housing, uh, transitional housing, smaller scale housing for people that want to live in cities or town. You know what I mean? Like that type of housing doesn't have the profit margins. So Mm -hmm. why are they going to build it? They're not, they're going to go build sprawl. So there's a bigger conversation that I don't think we should get into today that talks about we're relying on a private industry to provide for our needs, knowing that they're profit driven. I mean, it's that whole thing about you voted for the Jaguar eating your face off party. And then when you know that once they got into power, they ate your face off. Mm. (laughs) I saw that on Twitter somewhere. So I don't know who said it, but I was like, yeah, for sure. Of course, that's what they're going to do. It must have had
0: the, uh, the hashtag on (laughs) Polly.
1: It probably did. I scanned that hashtag. Um, so of course that's what they're going to do. And it's the same thing. When we look at privatizing healthcare, what do you expect when, when a for-profit model becomes a thing, right? It, this is what's going to happen. You're going to end up with a scarcity of what we need because the, the attention is going to be put on the thing that makes, the most profit.
0: Yeah. So this was, uh, yeah, so this article here, I did find the quote. Um, and, you know, if you're, if you're interested in looking it up, it is pretty good expose. It's uh, in the star. Mr. X and his MZOs, the Greenbelt consultant, has claimed credit for getting special zoning for developers. Now one of his clients is looking to resell the land for a big profit. So uh, Mr. X is a guy named John Mutton.
1: allegedly allegedly. he says it's not him so just Um, adding that in allegedly
0: so he just on a on a on a podcast he said uh addressing the question where the most money is made in development he said i'd have to say on the rezoning end first and then he added most developers that i know don't build so -hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, And there was a, one of the parcels of land that was in this whole Greenbelt takeouts, I believe, was owned by an offshore investment company. Um, I think a developer from China, perhaps, but I, yeah, I don't Yeah, there's remember. a handful
0: of them. And um,
1: they ended up wanting to sell it because they don't ever build. They just buy the land, sit on it until it makes enough money, and then – you know sell it at a, at a higher profit it's it's really literally land has become like trading stocks um, you you buy into it early you sell you buy low sell high and this comes into what the greenbelt actually I, I think a part of what what kept the greenbelt scandal going was that people in general, one, hate corruption. Okay, there's that, that piece of that we know the politicians aren't always going to do the right thing, but the idea of using government powers to benefit people that are already doing fine against the common good is just unbearable. Um, and it seems like Ontarians kind of picked up on that quickly. But I think it also, there was a piece of that we're tired of seeing land around us in our communities just. You know, engineering signs popping up over farm fields, uh, housing still getting expensive, water—you know—more blue-green algae events happening in in watersheds and more swimming restrictions. Like there feels, I think there was a there was a component of the pushback of people being very tired of the land that is around us that's supposed to be special, treated like as if it's nothing. Mm-hmm. It's really just something that can be given away and can be sold off. And the value that it brings to the people is not considered, right? So I think that that good on Ontario for making sure that there's still that ethic um, there, that we do actually really care about uh, what we leave for future generations. We do really care about those lands that we consider special. We should probably have more of those lands and we should have better environmental protections and lots of lots of the list of things that we should be doing to fully honor that ethic. Um, but I think it, it showed I think I was quoted in a in an article in the pointer. I know I was in an article and they said, what do you think Doug Ford learned from this? Um whole exercise and I said I hope he learned his place in democracy
0: mm. right? um.
1: he, he needed to be put in his place he is not the kingpin he is not the schoolyard bully he is the highest level of public servant who had to earn his place there and his place is not to be the boss of the province he's, he's there as a public servant so I hope he's learned his place
0: yeah, I mean,
1: he would probably hate that quote, by the way.
0: <laughs> he probably would, um, but I mean, he's an interesting guy, that's for sure, and he's 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 a very effective communicator for a lot of people. I think. Uh, I, In the most
1: populist way pop, possible, though, like it's it's not like a Martin Luther King effective communicator. It's like a folksy.
0: Well, and, uh, I mean it's it's folksy and and he does he definitely plays the everyman card really well and I think in part because that's somewhat genuine for him in that uh, in that I think he 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 probably I mean a lot of the the values that he has I think are pretty broadly shared I think uh, among a lot of ontarians and I think he makes a lot of hay with that. Partially intentionally and partially, and I think this is part of the strength of, of him as a politician, is that there is some authenticity there. Uh, it's just un- unintentional. It's just kind of who he is, which makes it challenging. But you can be sure that this, this uh, apology that he gave, you know, accepting that it was a mistake and, and promising to, uh, to correct it. Kind of his his public mea culpa was thoroughly thought through by a plethora of advisors um, skilled in public in, in public communications you know that it wasn't an off the cuff thing that so to the extent that it's authentic and it's it's authentically dug Ford up there, apologizing for this stuff, I'd say it's a mixed bag um, i I would say he probably feels bad. For getting caught more than anything else
1: <laughs> say, he's a he's authentically sorry for being getting caught right that's yeah yeah i think but, i think that's what it is and i don't think people I, I mean people think like okay he's said a story like he said his sorry and can we move on that's exactly what they want is mm-hmm. to say you've done your bit we're sorry like people need to realize this was one of the largest scandals Okay, people can talk about gas plants and they can talk about ray days and whatever. This was a bona fide, this is a bona fide scandal that's even going all the way up to the RCMP potentially. Like this involved unregistered lobbying, uh, preferential treatment, brown envelopes of information being passed. Um, Uh, extra incentives, financial incentives being given for unregistered lobbying to get certain things done, Uh, interwoven with relationships of these people going to a premier's personal function, being identified by the Premier and Integrity Commission reports as friends. Like, this is about as dirty and stinky as you could get. The only thing we're missing is the packages of envelopes of money that we're passed somewhere. And I don't, I'm just saying here, it wouldn't surprise me if that came out either. Like, this is not just a run-of-the-mill kind of controversy, maybe because politics have become so bombastic now that we're like, oh, what can you do? Like, these kind of things happen all the time. This kind of stuff doesn't actually come out in the public very often. And I think people have to recognize the gravity of what this is and realize that if that... If that was the type of process that was used in the most uh, high profile exercise in one of the most publicly contentious topics being the Greenbelt that they knew ahead of time were going to be against because they had reports indigenous communities, municipalities, environmental, civil society, housing people will not like this if that was the type of process that they went underwent for the highest profile, most contentious issue, what do you think happens to other processes that aren't going to have as much of the public attention? Like you have to be a pretty confident and I would say arrogant government to undergo that level of corruption in a file that you knew media and the public were watching very closely. It's almost like the version of the untouchables, like no one's going to find out about this. This is fine. I can even invite them to my to my daughter's stag and doe. I can even label them as friends and nobody's going to find out. So I, I don't know if people really appreciate that. So I wanted to underscore my little rant there. We should do a poster up of the untouchables.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, I mean that – you you mentioned ethics uh, a little bit earlier, and I I found one of the things I found really interesting with the article that the Narwhal and the Trillium did on Ryan Amato, who was the staffer for Steve Clark, kind of at the center of all of this, yeah, at the center of all this, was his response to um, their sort of early inquiries, Uh, let's see here. Yeah, so to the best of my understanding, from what has been reported in the media, this entire matter is, or maybe under investigation, he wrote in response uh, to inquiries um, or questions from the Narwhal and the Trillium. And then he continues, while I am concerned about the innuendo, that's the word that caught my eye, that underlies some of your questions and the accuracy of your research, it would be inappropriate for me to make any comment at this time etc. So they asked for, you know, follow up kind of specifically what he felt was any window and things like that. And he didn't get back to them. So he didn't back that up. But it's an interesting word to me that I mean, this guy clearly is a smart guy, you know, chief of staff. He's been involved in politics for a while um, at that sort of staffer level. And Um, including with uh, Patrick Brown, right? Mm -hmm. Local local connection there sort of uh, Mm -hmm. peripherally um, or tangentially. So a smart guy and and using that, the innuendo, let's see, where's the, I pulled up a definition here. Like I like to do Uh, so an oblique hint or an indirect or subtle, usually derogatory implication and expression oblique, right? So, but it's not something apparent, right? There's something it's, it's kind of under the surface and Kind of what it got me thinking about with this whole process is just kind of how murky it's been, and that goes also to this whole the connotations of corruption around it, right? So, that like a corrupt a corruption is when when sort of something that is established and and, and original uh, and in this sense, in this case, it's a process or, or system um, is is broken. And changed in a way that it no longer functions properly. It's been corrupted. And mm-hmm. so the murkiness of this I, I found interesting. But the and I'm going on a little bit of roundabout, but this also gets back to I think one of the reasons why this is so problematic, not just for the environment, but for for the economy and for our society generally. As a smart guy And this is at least the information that's come out in public is we don't know if there was an explicit sort of direction from the premier or from the minister for him to do this sort of stuff. But as a smart guy, you kind of look at what where you think those above you or those who have the power to kind of make your life better or to give you what you would like to have in life, you know what they're looking for. You read between the lines And that like the innuendo kind of thing, uh, implicate whatever those, those, those kind of go towards that, um, in that direction, right. Where you understand, okay, actually there is something that isn't being overtly or explicitly said here, but that I'm gonna, I'm going to pick up on, um, and, and kind of take forward a little bit. So to me that at least, what we know publicly, what's come out, that's kind of a big part of this whole story, is that supposedly things weren't done following the process or established processes uh, in the way that they should have been done, and as a result, got corrupted and arrived at this outcome that is, you know, suboptimal for not only the people of Ontario but the environment. Uh, including the green belt, and that's what's pissed a lot of people off.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that, to me, I think what is sort of laid bare in that is the value of good information, in particular when you are a decision maker, and in particular when you're a decision maker on behalf of constituents, tens of thousands and millions, in the case of the province, whose interests you're supposed to be balancing. Which mm-hmm. is what these guys are supposed to be doing. That's what they're left to do, but they don't seem to actually put any value or weight or honor or appreciation of that of of the role that they've been entrusted with mm-hmm. there. so actually seeking out the best information possible, giving it due respect and consideration in their capacities and in 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 with the resources that they are given in their in their capacity which is which is like entire ministries of people who have expertise in these areas Mm -hmm. and going to them and soliciting their best advice and making those decisions then Mm -hmm. um in, in in that way and it's just a profoundly disappointing and and corrupt thing that's happened here and it's not just it's not just related to the green belt Uh, You know, it it really is it kind of goes to the core of our government and our form of government, which is democratic and accountable government, supposed to be accountable to the people. And this this has been repeated over and over. So I'm going to I'm going to point the finger at this government kind of particularly here because we see this not only with these decisions around the Green Belt, we see these with MZO's which just run roughshod over any local participation. We see this with the changes that they've done to planning, which also really uh, basically preclude public participation mm-hmm. and, and, and that public voice. We see this with the their complete sort of uh, disregard for comments or input received via the environmental registry on on uh, proposals that they post there. We see this with their, with, with what they did to the environmental commissioner and you can just continue going on down this, down this.
1: Advocates office. autism And
0: and all of this is cutting down uh, avenues for that, for, for there to be some, some source of on the ground information that mm -hmm. might actually sort of, Enable them to make good decisions on the one hand, but also hold them accountable to those decisions on the other hand. Because, you know, if you're not, if you're not given the good information in the first place, you can't be, you, 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 you people can't say that you ignored it because <laughs> you didn't hear it.
1: Right, but you, you're assuming place. that, that they would actually even want it or, or maybe that there's an ideal world that they would want it. And I think, well, know,
0: not, I, I'm saying that that's the problem that's is that probably, they're not they interested it. in it and, and they look, should be.
1: Look at their tagline, getting it done. For the people. Right? Forget the for the people for this (laughs) this, this particular part. Almost all of the things when they're announcing projects, getting it done. We're the people that get it done. It's over and over. What is it? This tone, which I think also has a bit of like toxic masculinity in it. Like we just, you know, we just get shit done here. We don't mm-hmm. have to deal with the pussyfooting of talking to people. We don't have to consider people's feelings. We don't have, we just get it done. Right. Like there's the, there's that real kind of thing that makes my skin crawl because yes, governments need to get things done. Nobody is, is saying that they, that they shouldn't get stuff done, but how you get something done is equally as important mm-hmm. to what you get done. And the fact that their punchline is always getting it done. And we find these processes are actually behind what getting it done means, right. To, to build on your point shows very clearly that the outcome is what's most important, not the process. And in lost in that process is democratic rights, personal freedoms, things that can actually help people, right. Mm -hmm. All of that gets lost because the outcome is most important. And to go back to a motto, As another getting things done he was also under caroline marooney at the ministry of transportation uh for three years i think 2019 to 2022 ish and during that time he was the director of stakeholder relations you can't see them doing air quotes that's with his title but who are the stakeholders for a highway right? You're talking about the people that are going to be building it. You're talking about probably some municipalities and you're probably also talking about the landowners that are, sur- that are surrounding it. Well, what, what was the thing that involved getting the Bradford bypass done? We know from Auditor General reports previously that this project was bumped up well before other projects against staff advice, and also because it got bumped up so quickly, other things lost their funding that were ready to go. Staff said this isn't ready to go. So here's one example of getting it done, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to go against staff advice, go against the preparedness of your team to, to force something. And then what else does getting it done mean? It means that you put a regulation in that allows you to exempt yourself from an environmental assessment um, Condition. So, as a little backtrack, in 2000, uh, the the environmental assessment for the bypass was done. 2002, it was approved with conditional uh, conditional approval. There were several conditions that needed to be met in order for the EA to be solid. Right? If those conditions weren't met, the EA EA was now considered um, no longer any good. Mm What they did when Ryan Amato was the director of stakeholder relations was they wrote a new rule that allowed them to not meet those conditions, (laughs) thereby getting it done quicker, sure, but there was a reason why those conditions were there. Now they've removed most of those conditions and then made it so that the Ministry of Transportation was the only organization that had any say about what the tests were going to do, you know, the kind of left to the review, how they were going to pass it. So again, another example of getting it done that shows that they have very little concern for the things that have to get bowled over or pushed out of the way in order to come up with with an outcome, Right. And I think that's what we should be suspicious of across the sectors, whether it be healthcare, education, social services, highways, whatever. What does getting it done mean when, in this case, with the Greenbelt, it meant enriching a few, by the way, using burner phones, not using government emails, (laughs) using burner phones, personal emails, all of these, and deleting records. That was also caught within the Auditor General Report. That was stuff that was a part of the gas plant scandal by one person. They have multiple people within this that they found are deleting emails, using personal phones and personal emails to conduct government business, Mm -hmm. going to developers, places of business to pick up information packages. Yes. Like, anyways. Yeah. I
0: digress. Well, and that, I mean, there, there's the additional story for why the OPP punted the investigation to, or the possible investigation to the RCMP, which is that Amato also has uh, personal ties to Family. the leadership of the OPP, um, as well as to uh, you know, people who were sort of very involved in organized crime and um, investigations and things like that. and mm-hmm. Um, in particular uh, organized crimes, the, the connections between organized crime and development industry. Um, mm-hmm. I think his father testified to... Charbonneau. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, he's all all interesting stuff, but that's probably... Uh, 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 yeah.
1: We and said so. at the beginning of this, before we started recording, we're like, we can talk about the Greenbelt scandal, but we should really be focusing on where we're going. And I yeah. think we obviously had some pent-up... <laughs> up well, thoughts and feelings about this that we really probably haven't put out there more ex- as, as explicitly as we have. So we had a like little organizers therapy session here, just a mm-hmm. rant session.
0: Yeah. So all that, 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 uh, organized crime stuff, uh, just kind of bringing me back to that definition of innuendo. Maybe, maybe that's not somewhere we need to go right now, but, <laughs> um, but okay. To your point or to, to what about uh, the future what what do you think it holds in store for the green belt there there so the premier's been forced to walk back and these properties that were taken out have been um, untaken out to use the technical term and uh, he for a brief period of time after the after Steve Clark resigned and the new uh, minister came in they were going to do a review of all of the um property takeout requests numbering in the hundreds. So there was uh, a lot of concern that this really was sort of the start of the end for the Green Belt. Mm-hmm. But since then he's he's really had to walk that back and now they're talking about enshrining uh the Greenbelt uh area in legislation, legislation. previously yeah, previously there's been wiggle room with that, but kind of making that hard and fast. So what do you think about that and where?
1: Well, first off, they walked back the land removals, but they didn't walk back the review. At least I haven't seen oh, them okay. back the review. Hmm. So uh, people need to know that key pieces of legislation generally have a review period. It's every 10 years for the Greenbelt plan. And so the last review was done in 2017. Therefore, the next review is due 2027. So them doing a Greenbelt review, according to schedule, is two and a half years. Am I got that right? Three and a half years, roughly. Whatever. 2027 is when they're supposed to review it. We're 2023,
0: Going right? back to that whole uh, process, and there's there's a reason you know, why a reason following the process is important. There's things in place. Predictability. So yep. the
1: review they haven't walked back... The highways, interestingly enough, in that whole apology, they also doubled down on the highways. Hmm. But don't worry, folks. We're going to get the Bradford Bypass built in the 413 for those listeners out there. Yes, they're two separate highways. Yes, they both traverse the Greenbelt. They're – one's longer, one's shorter, but they're equally damaging. Um, So I think we would be – we would be silly – to fall asleep at this point. Um, I think with the with the Greenbelt Review, do I trust a government that uses burner phones and deletes emails? I don't know. Like I, I no, I don't. I don't. So I want there, I, I want to feel like I have some degree of trust with a government. And we've had now a term and a half with this government. And from the environmental sector, it's been one assault after another one after another one. You can go all the way from water takings to endangered species to climate to land use, there has not been one piece of environmental legislation that has become better and stronger because of this government. And we've lost key watchdogs, like you said, like the environmental commissioner. So I always believe that, you know, there's there's people can change and things can change. But with the amount of assaults that have happened on the environment on the green belt. Um, I am I'm not even optimistic. I am just going to be very trepidatious about whether I can trust this government with this. They have a lot to make up for. We still don't have a climate action plan. Mm-hmm. Like even though they had a report that just got released, I don't know, a few weeks ago showing just how dire it is for Ontario. We still don't have, uh, anything to do with like some protection plan that was supposed to be reviewed we still have problems with the green belt we still have them doubling down on highways i think we would be silly to assume that that apology came from a genuine place of we're going to treat the environment and our communities in a different way than we have before
0: mm-hmm. i
1: i don't see that being an about face what about you
0: uh, yeah, I agree with that. I think I'd only add one of the, my concerns about um, sort of uh, solidifying the green belt as it is, is that it is not good enough as it is. It right. can be made better. Yeah. And uh, I'm concerned that the barrier to expansion of it may be heightened yeah. with, with these legislative changes. So if you've listened to us before – You'll know that that's kind of our reason, our, our, our whole basis for existing as an organization is that we believe the green belt needs to be expanded because it, it offers a lot of good to Ontario, uh, both in terms of protecting the environment and in terms of, well, so these are sort of one and the same kind of things, but different ways of looking at it. And in terms of improving the way that we build our communities. So that little sort of uh, rant that I went on earlier The green belt really provides a good policy framework for getting that done. So we believe it should be expanded. Uh, So that would be sort of my primary concern with these, with this, uh, with this new tack that they're taking with respect to it. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And I should just clarify too. When the original Greenbelt was created in 2005, I know Doug Ford says some pretty terrible things about how that process was. It wasn't the way that he said. It was countless hours from ecologists and scientists and municipal partners and farmers and the whole bit. But people need to know that what the Greenbelt ended up to be there were other candidate areas that were included or were talked about being included. Simcoe County, having more of the green belt, some places in Waterloo, like there were, there were places that were, well, we could also go here. But my understanding is that at some point it became a political decision of like, how big can we make it? Right. And still, um, make it politically palatable. And even mm-hmm. the 2 million acres that they put in, they received quite a pushback for. So there was only so much appetite um, to take on so much. And um, so people may think, well, Simcoe County is not in it because they're not important enough, or we don't have the the natural assets to be included, and that's simply not true. Um, we do have lands in this area that are ecologically uh, as important as lands that are in the Greenbelt currently,
0: Moraine um, really, is a, is one.
1: We have several moraines. The yep. the farmland we we're one of the few places that still has agricultural systems that are large. Um, Southwestern Ontario obviously has some as well, but um, it's it's few and far between in southern and central Ontario. With the quality of farmland that we have, we have uh, three internationally significant wetlands. Um, the shoreline of Lake Simcoe, two thirds of it is already covered by the green belt, but Simcoe County's piece isn't. So there's all of these things that um, would be natural candidate areas uh, in our area. And I don't want people to think, well, because we're not in it, we just weren't important enough. In the end, it came down to politics similar to whether the green belt will be expanded. will also come down to politics. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately.
0: Yeah. So uh, I think we're kind of at time here. Um, Yes. But I mean, I just wanted to hit, hit home on, on, on that point that you, so his discounting of how the green belt was first created. I forget exactly what, do you, do you remember it enough? But it was kind of like roughly kind of like they just did whatever they wanted. Highlighters and crayons. Yeah. Yeah. So just, just really sort of disrespectful and um, disregarding the expertise that went into this. These are, you know, there's, there's. There were countless people who spent a lot of time and who had a lot of expertise in coming up with the boundaries and what should be included in the Green Belt. And just to under, underscore that point of how useful it is to all of us that we have a government and people in, 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 in positions who are uh, making decisions that they do so with good information. Mm -hmm. And so to have somebody at the head of the table who just so casually disregards that is -hmm. a problem.
1: Mm -hmm. And I'll just, just one quick thing. I know we're wrapping up, but I will also say that based on conversations I've had with MPPs, both within Simcoe and outside of Simcoe that are part of the PC caucus, the amount that they don't know their own legislation and the impacts that it has is astounding to me. I don't know whether they're not being briefed properly, whether they're being briefed at all, or whether they're even bothering to read the stuff. I mean, I know there's lots of legislation, but the amount of times when I've said, here's what this piece, this legislation says, and they're like, no, no, that wasn't what it was supposed was supposed to say this. And I have to pull out the document and read it to them to say, no, this is actually what you are doing the amount of times I have to do that is way more than the amount of times that I've run into an MPP who is fully abreast of, of mm-hmm. these issues and is fully aware. So I don't think we should lose sight that during this Greenbelt scandal, there was no PC MPP that stood up to say this was wrong, mm-hmm. right? They did it all behind closed doors in the caucus meetings, perhaps, but nobody came out as the champion. And equally, if we want a government that is going to – best represent people, then I think we also have to hold our MPPs accountable. Um, Simcoe County has four out of five now are significant portfolios in cabinet. So there's an opportunity for us to make sure that we have a voice at Queen's Park, but don't lose sight. It's easy to blame it all on Doug Ford. Yes, I know he's the leader of the party, he's the premier, it's supposed to flow down from him. But if we're really thinking about democracy being a bottom up, feeding upwards, then your local MPP, regardless of what party they are in, are equally accountable for how these decisions are being made and what kind of information they're listening to. Because I can tell you, a lot of them are still listening to developers at the local level.
0: Well, with that, we're going to wrap up. Please visit our website, Simcoe county simcoecountygreenbelt.ca. We uh, we post all of our updates there. And... Um, that's a good portal also to finding our, our social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, we're on Mastodon as well. And, uh, Margaret still keeps us on X, formerly known as Twitter. <laughs> oh, I was going to
1: say X. I'm like Twitter. Oh no, never mind. Yeah, yeah. I'm on a
0: date. <laughs> and you know what, if you like this episode and you like the other episodes, uh, you leave, uh, leave a rating on whichever mm-hmm. platform you're on. I guess that helps with, uh, exposure. Mm-hmm. And that would be good. <laughs> so until next time, have good. <laughs> day. Where am I going with this? Have a good, <laughs> have a good day. day. Yeah, we're not going to you know, we see you tomorrow, but you know, we week or uh, a few weeks, hopefully we'll be back next month.
1: Yes, hopefully. Okay. All right.
0: Bye all. Bye.